Let's have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege we have to come to you in prayer. Too often we think of this as just something we can easily do, and we probably take it for granted. We need to be uh, prayer warriors. We need to be diligent in our prayer life, disciplined in our prayer life, and we need to be focused in our prayer life. And as a church, we need to make this a priority. Father, we do pray for us as a congregation that we might continue to be faithful in the teaching of your word, faithful in our application of it, faithful in sensitivity to opportunities to give the gospel whenever we can to whoever we can. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that we might be challenged by what we're studying and that our eyes might be open to the truths of your word through God the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was surfing the internet the other day and ran across something that I have not heard in a long time. Now, the first time and the second time that I heard this, I heard this from a pastor in the pulpit. Now, he could hardly read this thing without, I mean, he just lost it uncontrollably several times. I think I'll get past it, but it's humorous, and I thought that I would read this to y'all just to share a little humor before we get into the Word this evening. This is an accident report. It is allegedly, I've always heard that it was submitted and it was reported at the Oxford Union on December the 4th of 1958. This bricklayer had an accident. This is his report. Dear Sir, I'm writing in response to your request for additional information in Block 3 of the reporting form. I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You asked for a fuller explanation. I trust the following details will be sufficient. I'm a bricklayer by trade. On the day of the accident, I was working alone on the roof of a new six-story building. When I completed my work, I found I had some bricks left over, which when weighed later were found to weigh 240 pounds. Rather than carry the bricks down by hand, I decided to lower them in a barrel by using a pulley which was attached to the side of the building on the sixth floor. Securing the rope at ground level, I went up to the roof, swung the barrel out, and loaded the bricks into it. Then I went down and untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure a slow descent of the 240 pounds of bricks. You will note on the accident form that my weight is 135 pounds. <laughs> Due to my surprise at being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rapid rate up the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel, which was now proceeding downward at equally impressive speed. This explains the fractured skull, minor abrasions, and the broken collarbone as listed in Section 3 of the accident reporting form. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley, which I mentioned in paragraph 2 of this form. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold the rope in spite of the excruciating pain I was now beginning to experience. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of bricks hit the ground and the bottom fell out of the barrel. 
now devoid of the weight of the bricks. The barrel weighed approximately 50 pounds. I refer you again to my weight. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the building. In the vicinity of the third floor, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for the two fractured ankles, broken tooth, and severe lacerations on my legs and lower body. Here my luck began to change slightly. The encounter with the barrel seemed to slow me enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of bricks, and fortunately only three vertebrae were cracked. I'm sorry to report, however, as I lay there on the pile of bricks in pain, unable to move, and watching the empty barrel six stories above me, I again lost my composure and presence of mind and let go of the rope. Oh, well, that gave everybody a good chuckle. All right, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Last time, we wrapped up this paragraph dealing with all of these various quotes from the Old Testament related to God's inclusion of Gentiles in his plan of salvation. They had always been in God's plan of salvation. The point from these quotes was to demonstrate that the inclusion of Gentiles in the body of Christ was not unforeseen, or the salvation of the Gentiles was not unforeseen in the Old Testament, although the concept of the church and the body of Christ was not uh, predicted in the Old Testament. Now, in looking at this last part of verse 12, as I mentioned last time, this is a quote from uh, Isaiah 11, uh, 1 and 11.10, these quotes dealing with the root of Jesse, that the concept of hope is mentioned. Isaiah says in Isaiah 15.12, quoting from Isaiah 11.10, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall have hope. Now that key word that I've underlined takes us into the key thought that sets up the, the, the final benediction in Romans fifteen thirteen here as he ends the main body of, this, of the epistle before he gets into the conclusion. And he writes, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. A couple of things we ought to note here as we look at this verse. The first thing we ought to note is God is referred to as the God of hope. The topic of the verse is on the doctrine of hope. Now, we've studied hope many times, and hope means a confident expectation. For the believer, for the use of hope in the Bible, hope is a certainty that is based upon faith. Faith in the Scripture is a way of knowing truth. It is not as as it's used so often in, in modern uh, in modern language, faith that is apart from evidence or you believe in spite of evidence or you believe just because you wish it to be true. But faith in the Bible is something that is based upon knowledge. It's based upon something that is certain, something that where you have assurance of its veracity. Hope is built on that faith. The faith points us to a certain direction Hope, in turn, takes that direction and fixes it attention, just locks on that in the future. It's a certain expectation that no matter what else happens, we have absolute, uh, unbending 
confidence that this is what's going to take place in the future. Now, that hope that we're talking about, biblical hope, is a hope that derives from God. The of hope there represents a genitive of source in the, in the Greek. It means that the God who gives hope or the hope that comes from God fills us with something. So what comes first, the hope or what it fills with? The hope. What's the hope based on? Faith. So we see faith which builds on hope. Hope then produces joy and peace. And then we have the phrase in believing, that is by believing. So the, the means by which we have this hope is on believing. So we start with faith and then we build hope on that and then joy and peace eventually results from that. And so he's saying, may the God of hope, this he's expressing his wish, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. Now that word for fill is the same word we have in Ephesians 5.18 be filled by means of the Spirit. And I've taught this many times, but in the Greek language, if you have a coffee cup, I don't have one up here, but I'll just use this water. If you have a a glass or you have a bottle and you're going to fill it up with something and you're talking about content, what you're going to put into the cup or into the bottle, you would use a genitive construction most of the time. If you're talking about what you're filling it with, you want to fill it with the content from from that bottle or from that pitcher or from that carafe, you're going to use the, the instrument that you're using to fill it is going to be stated with, uh, the, with the dative case grammatically. Now, when we come to Ephesians 5.18 and people read that, be filled with the Spirit, they think that what they're being filled with in terms of content is the Spirit. They're getting more of the Spirit. But that's not what, what it means because it's not a genitive construction. It's a dative construction. It, it's that the Spirit is going to be filling us with something. We're filled by means of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who already indwells us. We can't get any more of the Spirit. But the Spirit is going to fill us with something There's a parallel passage in Colossians 3.16 where Paul says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So what is it? What's the content according to that verse? It's the word of Christ. It's Bible doctrine. It's the word of God. It's the instruction from Scripture. So it's the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 who fills us with the word. The byproduct of being filled with the word when we are obeying the Lord and walking by the Spirit, is the Spirit produces in us joy and peace. Both of these are stated as fruits of the Spirit in in, uh, Colossians uh, 5, 20 to 22. So we have, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. So it's the, does, he does this through God the Holy Spirit, which is what's clarified in that last clause, that you may abound in hope, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God gives us this hope so that we can abound in hope by the power of God the Holy Spirit. I want to look at both the concept of hope and the phrase here, joy and peace, because this is where believers have stability. This is what gives us, uh, this is what gives us joy in the midst of 
trauma, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of chaos. Now, that doesn't mean that we're, we become emotionally disengaged from what's going on around us. But our emotions aren't controlling us. Our emotions aren't dominating the situation. We remain in control rather than becoming emotional. We don't panic. We don't give in to fear and worry and anxiety and excitement and all of these other things. We have a calm and a tranquility even in the midst of crisis because our focus is on the Lord and he's the one who who sustains us. Now, in the past, I've talked about this in terms of uh, different spiritual skills. These spiritual skills are how we stay in fellowship because every crisis, every external adversity, every difficulty, whether it's because we're dealing with somebody who's just uh, uh, decimal points away from being an imbecile or we're dealing with somebody who is uh, just too too caught up in legalism or we're dealing with the, 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 the wonderful flexibility of the government or some bureaucracy or the structures of, uh, of our employer or whatever they may be, or we're dealing with other crises that come along. All of a sudden we have health problems or we have financial problems or, or all of a sudden a hurricane starts barreling up, up the uh, uh, gulf to hit the uh, upper Texas coast, and we have to figure out how we're going to solve whatever happens as a result, and our life turns into turmoil. Well, the first thing we have to do is we have to make sure that we're in fellowship. We have to confess our sins, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins. That puts it, make sure we're back, at, we're in fellowship, we're enjoying that relationship with God, we're abiding in Christ, and we're walking by the Spirit. That's the second area. We have to maintain that walk by the Spirit. We, that's another term for walking in the light, another term for abiding in Christ. It's, it really describes the core dynamic of a fellowship. It is a relationship, enjoying that ongoing relationship with God. And this is talked about in passages like Ephesians 5.18 and um, Galatians 5.16. Now, three things that we do help keep us in fellowship, enjoying that fellowship. We trust in God Faith rest drill, as stated in 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4, God has given us these rich and magnificent promises, and we claim those promises. We're oriented to God's grace. We grow by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Peter 3.18, and that's also doctrinal orientation. These are the three basic skills that we have to implement day in and day out as we face these challenges. Then as we mature, we begin to understand that we're not just living for today, we're living for eternity. I think one of the hardest things that I see people deal with, we know it in an academic sense, but to where it becomes a normative orientation of our soul is so challenging, is that whatever happens in life is simply preparing us for eternity. We need to think in terms of the end game and not in terms of what's going on right now and trying to... We all have our plans, our hopes and dreams for the next year, the next week, the next uh, decade, whatever it might be. And these things hit our lives and all of a sudden those hopes and dreams and plans just, just disappear. And we get so caught up in grief and introspection and self-absorption that we forget the fact that this was 
under God's control, and God put it there for a reason to get our attention to focus on his plan and not our plan. Because in the end game, it's not about what we want. It's not about the direction that we have planned out for our lives. It's all about serving him and focusing upon him in terms of those priorities. So we have to develop that personal sense of our eternal destiny. We're living today not in light of our retirement, not in light of what we're going to do when the kids finally grow up and they leave the house, not in light of what we're going to do when we finally get out of school and get a job, but we're living today in light of what is going to count for eternity and what's going to be there at the judgment seat of Christ. Once we pass this stage, this is like adolescence. If you watch young people grow up, they move from a time when they're about nine years old, when they're really self-absorbed, to they're 15 or 16 when they're absolutely and totally self-absorbed, until they're about 23 or 24, maybe even older now, 28 or 29, and they begin to realize that there are other people in the world who may know a little bit more than they do, and they begin to focus on something outside of themselves. That's what happens spiritually with the personal sense of our eternal destiny. At that point, we really begin to mature in love. It's not that it's not there before, but now it begins to become complete. It begins to mature and really take root. So there's, again, just like in the, in the infancy stage, there's three key skills, the faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. In the adult or mature stage, you have three th- skills that go together, a personal love for God, an impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. And a lot of people have problems with that term, impersonal love for all mankind, because it thinks it makes it robotic. It's not personal. Well, but, but what we mean by personal is you have a personal knowledge and a personal relationship with the person you're loving. But a lot of times in life, we don't have any kind of personal relationship with the pers- people around us. They're, they're the, the, the checkers at the grocery store, the, uh, the, the customer service people on the telephone, there are other drivers on the highway. There's all kinds of people around us we have little or no personal relationship with, and we need to love them just as much as somebody we know that we care about that's intimately involved in our lives. So that's why we call it impersonal love. It's also a good term for it is unconditional love. It's not based upon that person's behavior. It's not based on that person's personality. It's based upon God's character and the character of Christ. So that's our impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind. We're to love love one another. We're, Galatians 5.14, we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And then there's occupation with Christ. We focus on Christ. We keep our eyes focused upon him, we are to live like Christ. As trivial and cliche as it became with the little little saying, WWJD, what would Jesus do? It encapsulates an important principle that we should be thinking, what is the what would Jesus do in this situation? What is the Christ-like response? And the last thing that closes out the circle is inner peace, inner joy, inner happiness, this happiness that comes from God that's a fruit of the Spirit that enables us to stay strong in the midst of crisis. Now, that describes a circle. We've built a wall. 
that wall surrounds our soul. As long as we're walking by the Spirit, as long as we're enjoying that fellowship with God, we stay inside that circle and we're growing and maturing and we're operating on the power of the Spirit on the Word of God. The Bible uses different terms to describe this. One is the term abiding in Christ coming out of John chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. Another term that is used is walking in the light. Another term is the term I referenced earlier, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, walking in the truth. Walking as a, as a picturesque term in the Bible always refers to your lifestyle. Is, are you carrying out your lifestyle in the light of God's word, in the light of God's righteousness, or are you walking in darkness? Are you abiding in Christ, or are you staying in the world? The issue is always our volition. At any given moment, we can decide, okay, I'm going to take this back and I'm going to handle the problem my way. I'm going to use anger or intimidation or gossip or worry or anxiety or panic or anything else that comes along to solve the problem. And then instantly, what do we do? We're outside of this circle and we're vulnerable spiritually to failure and self-destruction. The only way to get back in is we enter through confession of sin over here. Now, several years ago, we had our first attempt at drawing this, and it came out more of a castle than a fortification. Some of you will remember this. And we have the gateway here with the drawbridge. The entry is 1 John 1, 9. When we, this represents our soul inside the, uh, inside the fortress there, and this was an attempt to express this in dynamic. We don't build these bricks in a, in a static pattern. One day we're in Bible class and we're learning about the faith rest drill. The next day we're in Bible class. We're learning about unconditional love for all mankind. A couple of years later we're learning other things related to doctrinal orientation. And we grow in terms of whatever it is we're studying, whatever it is we're being taught. So it doesn't always just grow in one, one level at a time. Reason I emphasize that is because a lot of people got the idea that, well, first of all, I've got to get the faith rest drill down. Once I get that down, then I can move on to grace orientation. After I accomplish that, then I can move on to doctrinal orientation. That's not how it works. That's just a graphic demonstrating the logical relationship between these different skills. Now, another attempt was made that I thought was much more illustrative and graphic, and this is actually a picture painting that is outside in the entry hall of the church, and this represents the fortification in the midst of the storms of life. Now, it doesn't show up well on the screen, but each brick is labeled with one of the different uh, spiritual skills and demonstrating that the only way to survive the storm inside the fortification is by utilizing these, uh, these spiritual skills. Now, here's the logical progression. We start off in spiritual childhood, and the, as long as we're mastering these things, we're growing and we're maturing. And at some stage, we begin to get a glimmer of our personal sense of eternal destiny. All of those first five spiritual skills are exemplified by the concept of faith. We're learning to trust God. Even in confession of sin, we're claiming a promise, 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9 says, gives a condition, if we do X 
And then the promise comes, then God will do why? That's the statement of a promise. If we confess our sins, God will forgive us and cleanse us. If we don't confess our sins is the implication, then we're in a state of unforgiveness when we're not walking in the light, we're not walking by the Holy Spirit. So this is building our faith. That is the application of what we believe in our, in our life. As we go through the next level, spiritual adolescence begins to develop with our personal sense of our eternal destiny. And then we come to the upper level, that's spiritual adulthood. Now, the adolescent level is hope. So we have to learn to really trust God. As we grow in our faith, what develops is that certain expectation of the future, our hope. And as that is secured, then we begin to love. It's interesting observation from numerous, numerous uh, psychologists, not that I'm looking there for for validation, but it's interesting that a stopped watch is right twice a day, and even a blind hog finds an acorn every now and then. They recognize that people can't love if they're not secure. First John 4 says that perfect love casts out fear. The basic problem that people have is fear, anxiety, worry. That was the first emotion stated in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned, then uh, God came looking for them in the garden, and, he, and Adam said, well, we heard the sound of your voice in the garden, and we were naked and afraid. That's the first emotion related to sin. And you can't love if you're afraid, if you're insecure. Hope gives us that confident expectation and security so that we can fully develop in the area of love, personal love for God and personal love for all mankind and occupation with Christ. The result of this is joy and peace as we experience the perfect happiness of God. That's almost a consequence of doing the other things. Now, the reason I've given this to you and reminded you of these things is because when we get into verse uh, 14 here, it's helpful to think through what Paul is saying in light of what he said, excuse me, verse 13, uh, in light of what Paul says, he says, May God, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace. Here we are up here. He's talking about being filled up here. The word there for being filled is that same word that's used for God the Holy Spirit. As is stated at the end, it's done by the power of God the Holy Spirit. So as we're filled up with God's word, the end result is that we have this supernatural joy and peace and stability in our life that gets us through almost any kind of crisis in this life. Any kind of crisis, not almost any, any kind of crisis. Now, then verse 13 says, the God of hope, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace by believing. See, that takes us down to the ground floor, these initial uh, steps, faith. Notice, notice we have faith, hope, and love, just like we have mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, 13, 13. Now, what happens? What continues now in this church age? Faith, hope, and love. So, we have faith, hope, and love. And here we have you're also, um, you, that you may abound in hope. That's, that's more than the beginning. That's abounding where the personal sense of your eternal destiny is rich and full and dominates your thinking. So that's what's going on here. 
This takes us back to a lot of passages in the Old Testament and promises that focus on these aspects of hope, peace, and joy. In Psalm 39.7, we read the psalmist saying, And now, Lord, what do I wait for? He's waiting. Waiting in Scripture is always in this idea of trusting in God for something that's not coming right away. It has this idea of resting in God. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah forty thirty one. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. So what enables us to wait and to rest is our hope, our confident expectation. God is in control, and God's going to provide for us. Psalm forty two eleven. The psalmist is obviously struggling with emotional responses to the external adversity of life. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you depressed? Why are you feeling sad? Why are you down? Why are you disappointed? Why are you disquieted within me? This is, he's having a little self-talk here. Why are you cast down? Why are you disquieted? Hope, this is what the psalmist tells himself, what we should tell ourselves, hope in God. Don't hope in your circumstances. Don't hope in your plans. Don't hope in what you can see and touch. We like plans that we know that things are going to pan out a certain way with certainty. And yet when we're walking by faith, we may not see where things are going to go. Trust me, it's only an illusion that we think we know where things are going to go a certain way. God has a way uh, of surprising us. So the instruction that the psalmist gives to, his, to, him, to himself is hope in God. And his conclusion is, For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. One of the things that we have to develop, and I hope you can develop, is that when we are studying the word, we're claiming promises to go not only look at the context, but think through what is, what, what's going on inside that verse. What's the thought process of, of the writer of that verse? What, what are the, what's the rationale that's embedded within, within that verse? And so we have this question that's, that's being addressed to the depressed soul. Then we have the hope in God, which is the command with the, for the solution. And then the conclusion that is reached because of the hope in God. That's, as we, as we have learned, that's an essence of God rationale. Focus on who God is. He is worthy of hope. And then there's a conclusion that comes from focusing on the character of God. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. See, all that's embedded in just one verse. And that's one thing. If you are prone to depression or worry or anxiety, that's a great verse to memorize. Why are you depressed? Hope in God. Direct your attention away from the problem and on to the solution. Psalm 62.5 says the same thing. My soul, he's talking to himself again. Wait silently for God alone, for my expectation. And that's the same word in the Hebrew as hope. It's just translated a little differently. My expectation is from him. Are we expecting something else to provide it for us, something that can come from our job, something that can come from friends, something that can come from uh, success, something that can come from money or the things that money can buy? If so, we're putting our hope in the details of life. But here our expectation, our hope is in God. 
Then Psalm 119, 166 says, Lord, I hope I have a confident expectation for your salvation and I do your commandments. The second line flows out of the first. Because of that hope, I am obedient. Jesus says to his disciples the same thing that Moses said to the Jews, that if you love God, you will obey him. Hope leads to loving God. To the way the barometer for knowing if we really love God is our obedience to him. Now, another great passage is Lamentations 3:21 to 24. This was written by Jeremiah after the fall of Jerusalem in 586. It's a lament. He's expressing his sorrow, his grief over the destruction of the second temple, I mean the first temple, and destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he starts off, and I want you to notice, the verse. often we quote verses 22 and 23. But verses 22 and 23 are bracketed by 21 and 24. What's the key word in verse 21? It's hope. What's the key word in verse 24? It's hope. So what, what encapsulates this promise is the concept of hope, that confident expectation in God. The, uh, the writer Jeremiah begins, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. What he's recalling to mind is the doctrinal principles of verses 22 and 23. He's remembering the essence of God. He's focused on the grace of God and the mercy of God. That's what we call the essence of God rationale. Years ago when I was uh, a, a young believer, I read through the Psalms and was impressed that every time the psalmist starts whining about a problem that he's facing, he turns to some aspect of God's essence and the result of focusing on God's essence is he comes out of the, uh, of the mire of depression into the light of hope and confidence in his future. And this is what uh, Jeremiah is reminding, that each day after this horrible, horrible collapse, you can just imagine what that must have been like. They, the people of Judah lost everything they had. They lost their homes, their fortunes. In many cases, they lost their children who were marched off uh, to Babylon. They lost everything. Some of them left and went into exile down in Egypt. Others tried to stay in the land. Others were hauled off to Babylon, and it looked hopeless. But every day they woke up, they were still alive. As long as they were still alive, they knew God still had a plan for their life. As long as God still had a plan for their life, they knew they could be confident in him and God would provide for them. It wouldn't be in a day. It wouldn't be in a week. It wouldn't necessarily be in, in a year or two. But that eventually they would reestablish themselves and God would provide for them. And so Jeremiah focuses on the key issue, which is the character of God. It is through the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. The dead people back in Jerusalem were consumed. They were destroyed in the fifth cycle of discipline. But the ones who survived were not consumed. God's grace kept them alive. Now, they may say, why did God keep me alive? I don't have anything. I've lost everything. I don't know where my next meal's coming from. But that's the mercy of God that we still will have an opportunity to survive and go forward no matter what has happened. Because his compassions fail not. God's character is immutable. It never changes. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will never disappoint us. He will always sustain us. 
So because his compassions fail not, they are new every morning. And that's new in the sense of fresh. Each day, God provides for us and sustains us. He may have been thinking about God's provision for the Israelites in the, in the wilderness when God gave them manna from heaven every morning. Manna was a type of bread, uh, something like that, that appeared every day in, with the mist on the ground. It tasted like coriander seed, according to the Scripture. I always thought it tasted more like a like a Shipley donut, but uh, that's just my preference. Yeah, or maybe bluebell, whatever you like. But it had all the nutrients in it that you could ever hope for. And it sustained the Israelites for 40 years in, in, in the desert. God's faithfulness never failed. It was new every morning. And then he breaks out in a statement of praise by saying, Great is your faithfulness. His conclusion that he reaches, The Lord is my portion. He's my share. He's my inheritance. The Lord belongs to me. That's what he's saying. The Lord belongs to me, and therefore I'm okay. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I hope, I have confidence in him. Now Paul talks a lot about uh, about hope in Romans. In Romans 4.18, it's connected to faith. He talks about Abraham, who in hope, it's a difficult translation, in hope, and against hope. But what he means is in hope, that is hope in God, and against every human kind of expectation, Abraham believed so that he became the father of many nations. And this is in reference to Abraham's belief that God would give him a son that, through whom the blessing would flow. According to, uh, So that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. That's the promise of God. So he saw the promise of God. He mixed that with faith, trusting in that. That gave him confidence in God that God would do what he promised at some time in the future, and God eventually fulfilled that. So again, we see that, that development of faith first, then hope, and then we'll see later on love and peace and joy. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, because we have been justified by faith, that's a causal participle there, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the reality of our fellowship. We have that peace as a result of justification. Through through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That's that, that position inside the wall, standing inside the wall, protected by those spiritual skills. We're abiding in Christ, walking by the Holy Spirit. And the result is that we rejoice in hope. We have joy. So we see these same ideas, peace and joy, all tie, tying together. In Romans 5.3, Paul says not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. We boast in tribulations. We face adversity, and we're not saying bring it on simply because we love adversity for the sake of adversity, but because we understand that whatever the adversity is that we're facing, it's going to take us into greater maturity and give us a greater opportunity to see God fulfill his promises to us. So we glory in tribulations, glory in adversity, because we know that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character hope. There's the path. Okay, that's the outline. That's That's the roadmap to maturity. And you can't get to hope and maturity unless you go through adversity and you persevere. 
And as you persevere, it builds character. And as character is built, what comes out of that is that confident expectation that's going through infancy. That's why a lot of Christians don't even make it to spiritual adolescence because they cave in those adversities for childhood. They just can't trust the Lord. They're overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. They don't have any doctrine, and they don't know how to trust God. Now, in verse 5, Paul says, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Again, this emphasis that the Holy Spirit is the power source. He's the dynamic. He is the one who enables us to live the spiritual life. Paul, yeah. Good question. That is God's love for us. That's God's love for us. Romans 12.10, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor giving preference to one another. What's that? That's impersonal love for all mankind. That is um, unconditional love, giving preference to one another. So this is what we need to master in terms of spiritual maturity. Not lagging in diligence, not just doing it now and then when it's convenient, but all the time. Fervent in spirit, that means being passionate about growing spiritually. Serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. So this is how hope fits within that same pattern like we saw back in Romans 5.5. 5. Now back to Romans 15, uh, and now we're in, uh, this is in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. So God, the God of hope is filling us with joy and peace that we may abound in hope. So how does he do this? John fifteen eleven. Jesus told his disciples, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you. This isn't just normal happiness. This is, don't, don't mistake this for giddiness. Don't mistake this for some kind of emotional experience. And don't ever mistake this for somebody's personality trait. I had a professor at Dallas Seminary by the name of Ron Blue. And Ron Blue must have, if they had had the category of ADHD when Ron Blue was a kid, he would have been classified on, as ADHD and he would have probably been overdosed on Ritalin just to keep him under control. He was just one of those people that's naturally exuberant all the time. And I had him come and speak at my, my first church at a missions conference. And we had one guy in the church that was, he really wanted the church to be charismatic. And no matter what he was taught, he wouldn't listen. And he was mystical. And and after that, he said, wasn't that great to see the joy of the Lord in, in him? And I said, that's his personality. That has nothing to do with, with God, the Holy Spirit. You You have to understand that what that there are a lot of people who are naturally exuberant and, and happy. That's their personality. That is not what the Bible's talking about. Joy in the Bible is a production of God the Holy Spirit as a result of your study of the Word. It may or may not be expressed overtly by somebody's enthusiasm. It may be that somebody is very quiet and very serious and very sober-minded and very focused and yet in their soul they have great tranquility and happiness and joy. 
to confuse that with some sort of external expression of a personality is just going to lead you in the totally wrong way when you're studying the Word. Jesus said, remember, this is right before he goes to the cross. What's the context of John 15? It's abiding in Christ. And then then after telling them that they need to abide in him, he says, these things I've spoken to you, that is abiding in me, that my joy may abide. That's that word, remain, translates the same word, that my joy may abide in you. He connects joy with abiding and staying and enjoying fellowship with God. And that your joy may be brought to completion, may be full. In John 16:20 he says, "Most assuredly I say to you that you will weep and lament." And before that night was over with, Jesus would weep and lament. In the garden of Gethsemane, he would be under so much pressure that blood would ooze from the capillaries just under his skin out through his skin so it looked like he was sweating blood. The terms that are used in the scripture is he had great emotional turmoil. But he didn't let that put him in a position of sin. Just because you feel bad doesn't mean you sinned. If you feel bad and you do something wrong to assuage that bad feeling, that's when you've sinned. So what Jesus is is saying here to his disciples is that a time will come when you will weep and lament. I talked about this on Tuesday night. Christians know we're going to go through tribulation, we're going to go through adversity, and we may not get out of that adversity alive. The Lord may not save us through it. He may save us by taking us out of it in death. And it may be a long, slow, miserable, painful death. Think about the Christians like like Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who stood up against the Nazis in World War II and was put into a concentration camp and died just weeks before the war was over with. He did not, just because he was a faithful believer, didn't mean that he would die a calm, quiet death, but he had peace in his soul from dying grace. But his circumstances were horrendous. And this has happened to numerous believers down through the ages. Jesus faces that reality of our living in the devil's world. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice because of the pain we're going through. And you will be sorrowful. That's not wrong. Okay? Same words used of Jesus in the Garden of Eden. Those emotions are typical. If, If somebody in your family dies, if your wife dies, if your child dies, if your parent dies... You are sorrowful. But the Bible says we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. It doesn't say, no, 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 you're a believer. You don't grieve. You never are sad. You're never sorrowful. The Bible says, recognizes, yes, those are realities, but don't act on them in terms of your sin nature. That's a reality of living in the world where we face death and disappointment and pain and sorrow. Jesus says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Jesus had perfect happiness. Jesus was immutable. Did Jesus ever lose his maximum joy? Not at all. Was Jesus sorrowful? Yes. Did he grieve? Yes. He did both at the same time. See, we think of these as mutually exclusive. But you can have sorrow and grief 
But not like those who have no hope. You can have sorrow, but at the same time, you have peace and tranquility and stability because of your relationship with the Lord. And so that, that makes Christians different. It doesn't mean we deny being, being sorrowful or grieving. So Jesus says he is the one who supplies this joy. It's a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. I think I said 20 to 22 earlier. It's Galatians 5.22 to 23. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy is number one. Love is mentioned first. Uh, joy is number two. Love is mentioned first because the command that got Paul into this section was it back in Galatians 5.14 that you are to love your neighbor as yourself. So he brings love to the forefront. The fruit of the Spirit, the first one is love, then joy, and then peace. That's what we're talking about back in Romans uh, 5.13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace by believing. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6, Paul praises the Thessalonian believers you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. There was a lot of opposition. There was opposition from the Jewish community that was turned into opposition from the civic community. The Gentile community were opposed to them. And he said, you received the word even though there was all of this opposition around us with joy from the Holy Spirit. It only comes from God the Holy Spirit. James summarizes everything at the very beginning by saying that we're to count it all joy when we encounter various trials. So all this is what Paul is bringing together in one very succinct statement. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace by believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We can't gin it up. We can't make ourselves. It, it only comes as a byproduct of being in the Word. And if we're not in the Word and growing in the Word, then that's not going to be the byproduct. You, it, and by, when we need it, when we hit that, those adversities, it's too late to develop it. That's why it takes mental discipline every day in your Christian life Studying the Word, reading the Word, being reminded of the promises of God, utilizing those promises every single day so that as you grow and mature, when you face these crises in life, you can rest and relax in the Word of God in hope. Now, we have a few minutes left. What I want to do is introduce you to the conclusion to the epistle. This conclusion begins in the next verse, in verse 14, and extends down to the end of the chapter. And just like the opening introduction, it reviews some basic themes and some basic ideas that are stated in the in the opening introduction. In Romans, if you turn back with me, we're going to flip back and forth a little bit, so you might want to uh, put your finger in Romans 1 and in Romans 15. If you look at Romans 1, Paul gives a salutation, his opening greeting, in verse 1, and then from 2 through uh, 17, we have the introduction. There are several key things that Paul emphasizes in the introduction that, surprise, surprise, are restated in the conclusion. That's called good writing and good literature. He ties it together. And so I want to go through six of these, and we'll start tonight, and we probably... We'll just get into the first one a little bit. 
and that's in way of application. Like Paul, we should uh, have have serving the gospel as the central priority of our life. Paul says in these verses that he is here as a minister of the gospel to serve the gospel. That's why he's on the earth. He's not here for any other reason. He's not here to become a success at job. Not There's nothing wrong with success. There's nothing wrong with pursuing the, a great deal of success. But if you pursue success at the expense of doctrine for you, for your family, for your spiritual growth, then that's going to be a sacrifice that will come back and haunt you for the rest of your life. If you pursue any of the details of life, hobbies, uh, your career, money, the things that money can buy, where the details of life consume you so that you cannot invest time in your spiritual life and the spiritual life of your family, then you will regret that day the rest of your life. Paul says our priority is serving the gospel. And it's really interesting how he states this. On the screen, I've scrunched this a little bit because I wanted to get all the verses from the first chapter on the screen to contrast them with the verses in the sec- at the end. In Romans 1, 1, Paul says that he was called to be an apostle separated to the gospel of God. In Romans 1, 9, he says he served the gospel of his son. In Romans 1.15, he says, I am ready to preach the gospel. And in Romans 1.16, he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. We ought to ask ourselves, how true are these statements of us? Well, that can be true of Paul because he was an apostle. Well, it's true of Paul as an apostle, but this should also be true of every single believer. We are all called to different ministries, but we're all called to serving the gospel. So in Romans 15, we have three verses and then one in Romans 16, 25. This is the parallel. This is the mirror of the introduction. He says that he was called by God that he might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. Now, the English uses two words there. Normally, those words are translations of some form of diakonos. Not true at all in this situation. We'll get into the details of that uh, a, a little later on. But what Paul is saying here is phenomenal, and translating those words as ministry overshadows some of the rich spiritual truth that's there. But he's caught, he recognizes his focus is to minister the gospel of God. He says in verse 19 that he's fully preached the gospel of Christ, In verse 20, he says it was his aim to preach the gospel. And in each of those examples, it uses the Greek word evangelizo. Evangelizo is where we get our word evangelism, and it means to give the good news to somebody. It's not keruso, meaning to proclaim it, but it's a synonym, but it's emphasizing giving the good news with that particular word. In Romans 16, 25, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. So in Paul's life, the gospel is front and center, and that should be true for every one of us. Like Paul, we should direct our lives toward a proclamation of the good news of the gospel. 
Now, that can be done with our actions as well as with our lips. A lot of times, we're going to gain a greater hearing with some people by not running over them with the gospel, without pulling out our gospel gun and shooting them. There, we have to learn, and this only comes through time. I've learned it as many of the hard ways as anybody else, that there are times when we just have to keep our mouth shut about the gospel and we have to develop a relationship with somebody. Sometimes it may take 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Sometimes we may never get the opportunity to really sit down and clarify the gospel. But a lot of times we may be involved more in what what is called sometimes today pre-evangelism than actually getting to the gospel. Because some people have so suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and they've just created this 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 whole... Uh, a thick veneer around themselves that you have to pierce because they don't want you to talk to them about the gospel. That's the last thing they want to hear. So we have to build that and peel away that veneer over time before they'll be willing willing to listen. And a lot of that just comes with time and, and experience. So we work through that. So the first thing we learn from this is that we should direct our lives toward a proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's what it means, a good proclamation. Now, how many of us have forgotten how excited it was when we got saved to realize that we have eternal life and when we die, we're going to go to heaven, that God has solved all the problems for us? We want to tell people good news. But most Christians, by the time they've been saved two or three years, they're a little bit embarrassed. They don't want to get into an argument. They don't want people to think that they are uh, somehow backward or some sort of fundamentalist or whatever it is. The world has so, you know, Satan has used the world system to create such negative images of Christians, and we don't want to be associated with that. We want to be popular. We don't want to be unpopular. And so what we want to do is avoid that, so we want to be careful. And we get to where we're, we're so shy and timid we don't ever give anybody the gospel. We should be positive about giving people to the gospel. Paul was very excited. He was not ashamed of the gospel. And our fear borders on shame of the gospel. He's, and then Paul says in Romans 1, nine, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel. He serves the gospel. It's, this is an interesting set of words. I want to end with this, and I want you to hear it again next time. He uses this word latruo. Now, this is an interesting word because service often is uh, diakonos or diakonia or some form of that, of that word. But here it's a word that is specifically associated with priestly service. It, it, it has to do with our relationship to God. We serve uh, the gospel of God's Son. Now, this word is used again in Romans 1. And the way it's used in Romans 1 is to show that everybody serves something. Religious service. Everybody. What, whatever they are, whether they're a Buddhist, whether they're an atheist, whether they're a secularist, whether they're a Muslim, they all serve some religion. This is Romans 1.25. The unbeliever is the one who's exchanged the truth of God for the lie, the atheist, and worshiped and served. That same word, Latruo, it's religious worship. They serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. 
We get another form of the word. Notice it's latruo. That o at the end indicates it's a verb. And we have the noun form of that, latreia, used. See, on this slide I've got the verb on the right side, but it's the word on the left side, latreia, that is translated service. Romans 12.1, the beginning of this last section in Romans, Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. See, this is a priestly concept. It's, it's the term sacrifice and offering are used almost interchangeably. But here it focuses on the idea of sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's priestly service to God. This is part of your role as a priest in the royal family of God. So in Romans 15, 16, Paul is saying that I might be a minister of Jesus Christ. And it's not the word diakonos, it's the word liturgos, where we get our word liturgy. It's, focus, it's a word that focuses on priestly service. So he's casting our service to the gospel in a, in a, with very strong religious ritual terminology, but it doesn't have anything to do with ritual. It has to do with the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. So this is his focal point. We see some other passages, like in Hebrews 8.2, 8, this word liturgos is applied to Jesus as a minister in the, in the temple, and it's applied to Epaphroditus in his ministry to Paul's need. And so in Romans 15.16, it, it emphasizes this. And then we get to the next word, ministering the gospel of God. It's herer or geo, which means to serve as a priest. So this is the, what's the ritual of the church age? And I'm putting ritual in quotes. It's serving God day to day. It is Romans, I'll end there, it's Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This is the, the focal point of understanding the spiritual life. We'll start off with that next time to get it back into our heads. It should revolutionize your understanding of your Christian life. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon them and to be reminded of the fact that our spiritual life is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. It's not just something we do, but something that you have have given us and provided for us and that, that the focal point for our lives is our volition. Our focal point is to serve you and that ultimately is expressed as serving the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's our mission coming from the Great Commission as Jesus stated in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these truths in Christ's name. Amen.